I caught Eamon Brennan at a very unusual moment, it's fair to say, and maybe the only time a person in his position had a chance to talk and reflect. At the time of recording this conversation, the world was at a near standstill, and he was charged with helping to find a path through the biggest crisis to ever hit the aviation industry as Director General of Eurocontrol. That's the Intergovernmental European organization that manages European air traffic and its network. Before all of this, his job was stressful enough in that he and his team basically have the overall responsibility for the safe navigation of every single flight which passes through European airspace. He is just another Irish person at the top of the aviation business who usually doesn't do interviews because, as I said, put simply, a job like his doesn't leave any time for it. So I was delighted when he agreed to come on The Flying Irishman and tell us about his journey and how he went from life as a chartered accountant to becoming one of the most important people in the world of air travel today. This is The Flying Irishman Podcast, episode four. This is a, a very strange time and probably the only time maybe that I could get uh, my hands on you because of how the world essentially in terms of aviation is nearly as close to a standstill as it's ever been. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, Charlotte. I mean, we've had a 95% reduction in air traffic in Europe. And just to kind of put that in context, never since the dawn of aviation has that happened. Go right back to the 50s, 60s, even with the 2008 dip, you know, we had a 15% dip. This has been basically nothing was flying for many, many days but mm. cargo. Thankfully, now we're seeing a little bit of a resumption in the last few days. How is your optimism levels before we get into, you know, whether you're an optimistic person or not, and what growing up in Galway in that weather does to your optimism? How are well, you well, about all of this? Well, I'm actually an optimist, and, and, and I'm one of the few that's actually optimistic in aviation at the moment. But look, this has been a big hit, but, but you have to go back and ask yourself two things. Why do people want to fly? And to me, the reason that they want to fly is it's the business of freedom. It's basically visiting friends, it's human contact, it's all this. None of this other stuff works. You know, the Zoom and all of these kind of things, very interesting for a while, but you don't get the human touch, you can't mm -hmm. have the side conversation, so you miss it all. And that's oh. why I think I think that by about 2023, we, we will be back, and hopefully in a little bit more environmentally friendly way. I'm very keen on promoting a new form of aviation. Aviation, you know, with the environment doesn't have to disappear. We can actually develop new technologies so people can continue to fly. Yeah, and bizarrely, this, this window of time might be exactly what's needed, because I often found in putting together this series that one of the great difficulties of contacting people in the industry is you guys never stop working. Was that something that came from your family back in Galway, that commitment to absolutely burning the candle at both ends? Well, I think in aviation you do that. I mean, because it's a H24, 365 industry. So, you know, if you if you go back to my background, my, my father in Galway was a, was a building contractor, mm. originally a plasterer. And, you know, he worked hard all his life and basically built a lot of churches and schools and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was always working. I was always doing things, you know, I was involved in football teams and always involved in, in societies at university in Galway as well. So 
I, 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 I very, get very anxious if I'm not doing anything personally. So mm. I actually need to be busy. And then when I kind of stumbled into aviation, I found that it was an industry that I really liked it because it's dynamic and you meet really interesting people. And actually, it's all about, it's all about, you know, what I call dynamism, dynamism, because to me, the, what makes Irish people successful in aviation is the fact that they apply a lot of energy to it. People like Michael O'Leary and Willie Walsh and, you know, Alan Joyce and these guys, you know, the one characteristic they all have in common is a high level of energy. And mm -hmm. the same goes with John Slattery and Donald and these guys. These are people who apply a lot of energy and that's unique in aviation. I've watched it in other nationalities. They don't put the same passion into it. Yeah, now I don't. I don't want to jump too far ahead because coming yep. out of NUIG, you uh, immediately head into travel and tourism uh, with your commerce BA behind you. What was that urgency to get into that business, and was it just the case of, as you said at the start, your your interpersonal contact with people is the thing that gets you out of bed? Well, when I finished in UC, UCG at the time, it was it was a small university, and I have to say. A great place to, to, to go to college. You know, I, I did a BCom there and I subsequently became a chartered accountant. And right. I realized very quickly after having qualified as a chartered accountant, that this was the one thing I didn't want to do. <laughs> and, and while, while I, while I was, um, finishing my chartered accountancy, I, I, I was doing a private pilot's license. I, I did some flying in the, in Galway Flying Club and I subsequently finished it off in, in, in France. So I did a lot of PPL flying, what they call just private flying. So I've always liked to kind of hanging around airfields and looking up at the sky because when you're learning to fly in Ireland, weather, it's not very kind for weather. Mm. So you spend a lot of time inside with your colleagues drinking tea, <laughs> looking at the clouds and hoping, can you fly in? You know, is it okay to do a circuit? So, so I, I, I left, um, Galway then, and then I went to London and I worked with um, a tourism consultancy in London. I, I wanted to get consultancy experience and I fell into kind of travel and tourism and I worked for a company there called Horwith, their tourism consultants. And then subsequently, you know, I did a lot of international assignments with them. I spent a year working in, uh, in Malta mm -hmm. and I did the national tourism plan for Malta together with Horwith. And then I subsequently went off then on a European Commission project to Southeast Asia, and I spent seven years in Kuala Lumpur, where I worked with a lot of the national training organizations, the tourism organizations, the airlines, and I got to know a lot of people in the industry, in Singapore Airlines, Malaysia Airlines, and a, a very good knowledge of, of Southeast Asia. My, my two youngest kids were born in Kuala Lumpur, so I have a really strong affection, for, particularly for Malaysia and, and that part of the world. So what was the plan then, Eamon? I mean, every every young fella has a dream and an ambition, whether they tell you about it or not. I mean, you'd found your way to Kuala Lumpur and you'd had two kids. I mean, yeah. Well, until you saw this ad for well, the Irish three, I, Aviation yeah. Authority, at that time, were you thinking Kuala Lumpur might be where I spend the rest of my days? Yeah, well, I, I, it nearly was, to be honest, because I actually have, I have three kids. Uh, the older, the oldest one, what brought me back from Kuala Lumpur back to Ireland was my oldest guy was coming to an age that it, we had to, you know, if when you're an expat, you always face a quandary, you know, do you continue mm. after the, the, the kid is 11 or 12 or yes. he or she? I'm, in that, I'm in that moment myself yeah, right now. Yeah. And you, and you move on to kind of, um, stay with the international system or do you bring them back? And, there's always something kind of gnawing at the back of your head saying, oh, you know, I want them to play Gaelic football. And mm -hmm. he turned out to be a great Gaelic footballer <laughs> and rugby player. But, you know, this is always worrying you when you're overseas and 
you're thinking back of your own childhood. You know, I'm from Salt Hill, Galway. And, and, you know, basically when you opened the back door, my mother opened the back door, we played on the street. You know, there was nothing special. It was a normal kind of, I would say, 1960s, 70s childhood, but it was more free. And whereas when you're an expat, it tends to be more structured. And I was kind of worrying and my wife was worrying, are we missing the freedom of, of this with the kids? So that was a big driver. So we ultimately decided to go back to Ireland. And, and that's where, where I, got the job as the commercial manager in the Irish Aviation Authority. Now, that was a new thing at the time, correct? That nearly was around the time of its inception. So, yeah, were you part of kind of the formation of that organization's identity? I would have been, yeah. I'd like to think I was. I mean, one of the skills that I I brought to it really was, I mean, you were here, you were looking at basically, this was happening all over Europe at the time, you know, aviation authorities. And and just like, what does an aviation authority do? Well, you know, it regulates all the safety standards of all the airlines. It provides air traffic control services and Irish airspace and at all the airports and of the North Atlantic. So it's got a big scope of responsibility. So it has been moved away from the Department of Transport to what we call a semi-state company in Ireland. And it was a whole big culture change program. I, I was brought in to work on big, bringing a kind of a business ethos, you know, a performance ethos, a delivery ethos, and mm. to basically stop treating, say, airlines as kind of like merely an impediment to the system or as users, as they used to call them. I changed that ethos to kind of start talking to them as customers and delivering services and changed the ethos. And we, we did a tremendous job in the IEA. I'm very proud of it. So those customers that you changed that view, I mean, a lot of people attribute this to the reason why these budget carriers prospered out of Ireland, that you saw your role and the role of the authority less as the headmaster giving a rap on the knuckles and more of a coach. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very, very proud of, of Ireland's aviation, um, Jonathan. And, and one thing that I set out to do when I became the state regulator effectively was not to provide a system where regulation stopped business, but actually regulation was a way, if you understood it and if you developed it properly, that it would help business. Mm. So, you know, just to give you an example, when, when I became the regulator, Reiner had 24, 25 aircraft. When I left, they had 450. Now, Ireland has the strongest safety record in Europe, the strongest delivery record in Europe. So you can do that and you can still have a positive business. And that's what's, what's good about Ireland is, is that it's a small community. Standards are high. People work together, but it's about delivering a kind of a safe kind of an airline. And Reiner is a tremendous example of a, you know, an airline that's present in virtually every market in Europe. And it's a really big shining example to Ireland, but it's one I think many Irish people don't understand. They look mm. at Dublin Airport and they think Aer Lingus is the biggest carrier when, in fact, it's, you know, one-tenth the size of Reiner. I've heard you say before, because, you know, some people, that would ring alarm bells, that the authority <laughs> is seeing its role as to encourage rather than regulate. And you've pointed to the EU being the key there, that above you for to keep everything in line and in order was an EU uh, level of uh, regulation. Was that a pain for you that people were kind of drawing that parallel between you and the financial regulator? No, I, 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 I don't think so at all. I mean, the, it, this, the safety system in aviation is, is very systemized. And my, my job as the regulator in Ireland was to make sure that actually all the European standards were implemented. But I tried to do them in a, in a way 
that they didn't impede business. Now, now remember, you know, there's no light-handed regulation. There's nothing of that sort. Ireland has a very strong safety record and continues to do so. One of the very best in Europe. And in fact, in the world, I think it was number two or three in the world. But the reality is, I, I always recognized that we lived on an island and that if the economy was to prosper, aviation needed to prosper. Mm. And, and then you see that Irish people are very good at aviation. I mean, you might ask yourself, why do so many people from Ireland get top jobs in aviation all over the world? And it's because I believe we live on an island and we encounter aviation at a very early age. Mm. You know, if you're on the continent, you just drive. Yeah. I mean, the, the, that time period, right, let's say 1999, for example, to 2001 was exactly that. People embracing the idea of intercontinental and, you know, just movement, uh, as you say, the freedom of it, the hop to France for the weekend, the romantic uh, uh, getaway in Edinburgh. Uh, tell me. When you were watching that and feeling that change take place and knowing that, wow, I'm having an impact here and we're all together getting somewhere new to broaden the minds and the idea of travel for for people in this country to then see 9-11 take place. What's going through your mind and how are you thinking as tragic as this is that this may impact you, your life and the business? Well, Charlotte, I remember 9-11 very well because I was actually working that day. And we had, at the time, I think about 200 aircraft in Irish airspace heading to the United States when the Americans told us, no, no, they can't go on, they got to turn back. And one of the big issues we faced was parking them back in Shannon and, and you know, putting them to Birmingham and sending them back to Europe. And it was a very unusual circumstance. The first time ever, you know, because remember, Irish air traffic control effectively extends well out into the middle of the North Atlantic. Mm. You know, we do communications to there. And the point is, we had the responsibility of turning them back. But to me, it was a pivotal event because it showed how vulnerable aviation was to terrorism. You know, beforehand, if you remember back to the 17s, the 70s and you saw the terrorism, say, with, you know, the PLO and blowing up aircraft and this kind of thing, it was always in the distance. But this was something close. You know, we all knew people in New York mm. and this was really close to us. So to me, that was a pivotal warning to say that aviation as a global industry is very vulnerable. And you all saw the security implications over the next decade that happened from that event. I mean, it did change everything. I mean, in the sense of the experience, I remember hearing George Hamilton, the RTE football commentator, you know, being very nostalgic for the time where he would bring his bag over his shoulder and walk through the gate after showing his ticket. I mean, that that implementation of everything that had to come in after that must have been absolutely head melting and hugely expensive. And did you ever at any time wonder this is going to prevent people from enjoying this thing that I've built up for this length of time? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I'm an optimist, Jonathan. I still believe people and particularly Irish people want to travel, you know, mm. and I think, you know, you're, you're going through a particular period with the pandemic at the moment and people are nervous. I would, we maybe talk about that later, but you know, 9-11 brought things in like armored doors for aircraft and, you know, a lot of procedures for the cockpit crew and looking at scanning of liquids and all this, it became more of an inconvenience. So unless you were going somewhere, you know, that was 
over three, four, five hundred kilometers. It really wasn't worth flying, in my view. But in Ireland, particularly in Ireland, we're an island. So if you gotta, if you gotta move, you gotta fly. So I think we adapted very well. And, and I would say people like the Dublin Airport Authority that they put this through very, very quickly. And, you know, the IAA are responsible for the security standards as well. And, you know, we did this in a kind of a pragmatic way, but in, in, in a safe way. But at the end of the day, I think we managed it pretty well. And, you know, aviation is very resilient and people are very adaptable. Wait till you see, we will adapt to this crisis and we will come out of it better. So when I hear you talk, you seem to have, like that optimism does, it comes through. Like, I believe you and I hear you. And I do think you're right that when things are thrown at us, we do, we do adapt to them. But your, you know, your career, Eamon, and the places you've got to, the roles that you've won through election, this is essentially as political a role that you're in right now at Eurocontrol. It's as political a role as you can get outside of being a politician. Now, your brother was a politician and Minister for Travel. Surely there was a temptation at some point when you're seeing the impact and the success and your ability to convince people and get things, difficult things done. Politics had to be a temptation. Well, to, to be honest, Charles, for me, to be honest, it never was. There was only room in our family for one politician, Seamus, my late brother. But but my father, you know, just to go back, my father was a, an election agent for Fianna Fáil in Galway West. And he, he ran the constituency there for many years when Bobby Malloy was a, was a, was a minister and Maura Gagan and former ministers there. So, you know, my family has a very strong connection with Fianna Fáil. My, my grandfather was a founding member and you know it's a long it's a long collection and what i notice is is, is amazing and i'm very friendly with you know uh cross party i'm not i'm not a political kind of a person that takes very black and white situations so i've always worked with you know i've worked with seven or eight irish ministers from all parties and always had a very good relationship even with, with leo Faradkar, the former t-shirt you know was a minister i got on very very well with and pascal donahue and all of these guys but what i do notice is, and I've said this before to, to my wife, who comes from a Fianna Gael family, is that, you know, when Fianna Fáilers talk to me, they talk to me like I'm a member of their family, like you're a member of the clan or the cult or the club. And I, I never understood this. You know, it comes to, they all know my brother and they all have a kind of an affinity. So, you know, I, I never really wanted to be a politician. The, ro the role I do here in Europe has a high operational context as well, because we run the whole air traffic control system for Europe. And that's a kind of a 10 billion euro a year industry in, in Europe, just, just that job. And also we do all kinds of technical stuff and integration and we do the political advice for the European Commission as well. And we, we work together. So there's a high political role. I would agree with you there, but mm. it's like any CEO, as well as running your company, you have to be aware of politics as well, because otherwise you'll trip up. So you've been at uh, Eurocontrol for, correct me if I'm wrong, it's since January 2018. Yep. What, is, what does the day-to-day -day look like there, or what did it look like before all of this came down the line? Well, what it did look like and what it looks like now are two different things, but let's start with the did first, Jarnet. I mean, you know, the role of Eurocontrol is basically to manage the European air traffic control network. So we do that in 41 countries, and on a normal day, we would, have a, we would manage 35 to 40,000 flights every single day. So if you want to travel from Dublin to Greece, we make sure that your route is there, your slot is clear, everything is right through. So you go from Dublin to Greece, 
kind of seamlessly. Because remember, you can't leave Dublin unless the local air traffic in the United Kingdom and in France, Switzerland can deal with you. So we coordinate all that activity. And that's a huge job because you can Mm -hmm. imagine like with with the many airlines we have and 600 airports, we have people there. And so it's a huge technical job. So day to day, the first job every morning is to make sure that everything is going okay. So beforehand, I used to go into the office in Dublin and say, okay, everything okay in Dublin, Cork, Shannon, North Atlantic, yeah. Now I start looking at um, Amsterdam, I start looking at Vilnius, I start looking at, you know, Skopje. What's going on here? Are we okay? So it's a much wider role and, and it's, much more, it's much more dynamic. So the first part of it is to make sure the system is working. Then the second part is trying to deal with the politics of the evolution of the single European sky. And the third part then that's every single day is to make sure that everybody pays. You know, I said it's a 10 billion euro industry in Europe. Mm. And when you fly in European airspace, you pay. And I collect all the cash for everybody all over Europe and disperse it all around to every single state, all 41 member states. I mean, that's massive. That's a massive responsibility and massive power. I mean, with power comes corruption. I mean, there's obviously scandals uh, left, right and centre in every organisation. How does Eurocontrol prevent countries from trying to grease the wheels or try and make make them get a better uh, lot from what Eurocontrol can do? Well, well, I think that Europe has the advantage in it, and aviation has one advantage over other industries. And I wouldn't say it has the same level of corruption that you might find in other industries, to be honest, because it's a systemized industry. You know, what happens in Ireland tends to happen in France. What happens in France tends to happen in, in Italy because people go from A to B. You know, when you cross from Irish airspace into the UK airspace, you don't notice a little bump in the road. So therefore, what's really important for Europe is common standards. Now, we impose common standards, flight standards, slot standards, mm. you know, basically which way you fly. It's really interesting. I mean, I love the job every day because I'm actually interested in it. And I, I understand that having been a, a former private pilot, I get it. But, but it doesn't creep through in the same way. I mean, some countries will, of course, take different political positions. And maybe I just give you an example. You, you know, if you look, for instance, with the recent pandemic, you know, everybody went back to national boundaries very quickly. And you have a situation where France will bail out Air France, the Netherlands will bail out KLM, you know, um, the Polish will look at LOT and, and uh, all of this happens. And the question happens, who bails out Irish industries? You know, the government don't help. Aer Lingus, they don't tell Breiner, and they don't see that they're the same responsibilities. Whereas the, the French, even though Air France is privatized, have a big affection for their carrier. The Dutch, with their ones, the state holds shareholdings, and, and Lufthansa just got an 8 billion bailout. So, you know, there's a funny kind of relationship with aviation in Ireland because they somehow the government thinks that it just kind of happens by itself, and it actually doesn't. Mm, yeah, I mean, we're in really, really dark waters here. I mean, this is obviously we're seeing uh, EasyJet cutting jobs and routes. I mean, this is unlike September the 11th. This is unlike SARS. This is unlike that um, volcano incident that people uh, may remember. Um, I mean, you kind of don't have anything to compare this to, do we, Eamon? No. Not in aviation, we don't. I mean, realistically, if you wanted to stop the world and, you know, we've had all these discussions about cold wars and all this kind of thing, a pandemic, you know, 
coming from China in January. I mean, maybe I could just give you a, a story, Jarlath. Hmm. I, I looked at the risk register for Eurocontrol. Every organization has a risk register and I signed off on it on the 18th of January and nowhere did it say pandemic. Yeah. So, so that, and that's only a few months ago. And I remember back in 2010 talking to Willie Walsh, you know, the same thing happened there. Nowhere did it say volcanic ash. So you get hit with things throughout your career that you don't expect and you're defined by how you, how you respond to them. And for, for aviation, this is catastrophic, but there is opportunity, Charlotte, and the opportunity are to renew the fleet, you know, retire some of the old fleet, take some of the new ones on, electrification, and, and also to kind of sit back and say, okay, where do we need to travel to? What are the routes that we need? And I think this is really important for Ireland. I mean, Joe Gale is one of the economists there with the good bodies. And he all the time is saying that Ireland needs to recognize that we're a nation. And that's why I think that the incoming government has to be very careful that in your rush to be completely green, that you kind of forget that you're actually an island, you know, and mm. all of the, uh, the USA pharmaceutical and drug companies and all of this, you know, they depend on international travel. So the trick is just to come up with a greener form of international travel. That's the answer. Well, the, the woman who's brought that to the tip of everyone's tongue is Greta Thunberg. And, you know, she is really, through her ability to articulate things in clear terms and her passion, made a lot of people sit up. I mean, is that, am I wrong on that? Or does Greta Thunberg come up at things like, I mean, you've attended these Bilderberg meetings, is her voice being heard? I'd like, I'd like to think that it is, Jonathan. I mean, first thing I'd like to say about, about Greta, it's amazing that it takes a kind of a teen mm. to push us all in this direction. And I think what's, what, what I found very refreshing about it is she can say what she thinks. You know, when you, when you get a job, even when this interview, you can never really say what you think. You know, sure. you have to kind of rationalize it because if you said what you think, you know, we'd all be all over the place. But she says what she thinks and what she feels and it comes across so fresh. The re the, but the but problem that we all have is how to adapt, you know, a, a, a petroleum-based economy, you know, that, that churns out a huge amount of CO2 to, to one that doesn't. And this is, this is the green deal that's coming in Europe. And I think it's a good, it's a good idea as long as we make sure that we, we, we take an overall view. And what I mean by an overall view is, you know, if we can eliminate CO2 from cars and go for electrification and public transport and put people on bikes and all of this kind of thing, this is great. But we also have to realize that there are some industries like aviation where it's going to take a little bit longer. So we're starting to work with biofuels, synthetic fuels, and maybe, you know, a little bit of carbon is going to always be there. I don't think it's going to be possible. So I think the discussion has to be, do people want to travel? And what's the price? And that, that's a big discussion that we have to have because if you look at, for instance, back in 1984, the average fare from Dublin to Amsterdam was 330 pounds. And then you had a thing called a super apex. You had to book it and stay over a Saturday night. Now it's 60 euros. Now, wow. the question is, where's the balance? But people are traveling more and it's good for the economy, in my view. Well, I mean, what Greta would say there is, the time for talking is over. I mean, there's a certain amount of rhetoric with Greta that I'm like, mm, well, we're going to need to talk. You know, we, yeah, you know, there's, there's, so, like you say, there's somewhere in between. And as I said at the start, this weird window of time that we're in actually provides that opportunity. 
What have you heard about in terms of actual advancements, like actual concrete change towards a greener way of flying that have come up in this time? Or has a lot of this window been spent with carriers just panicking over loss of revenue, jobs and routes? Well, well, Jonathan, I think the initial phase with the carriers was a panic. I mean, let's be realistic. When you, when you have your booking engine falling off by 90% and your bookings disappearing, your cash going out. And remember, airlines live on the forward bookings. And, you know, I've seen a lot of problems with people looking for their cash back and their tickets back. Mm. You have to realize that airlines actually need the forward cash. That's what they live on because there's not a high margin on a lot of the airlines and they don't do that well. So they use the cash flow. But to, but to get specific about your question, there is a lot happening in aviation at the moment. It'll just take a while. We need about four years or five years, in my view, to get together with things like electrification for smaller aircraft, and that'll be up to a 100 seat. We're, lo- we're looking at much more use of composites to make the aircraft a lot lighter, changing the way the design of the engine works. And if I can be really specific here, biofuels and synthetic fuels offer a good way forward. In other words, a mix of um, jet fuel, and synthetics, uh, you know, coming from rubbish or coming from crops so that we actually have less of a CO2 uh, output. So there's a lot of work been done on that at the moment. And there's a lot of work that we're doing in Eurocontrol to change the whole European ATC network. So you always fly at the most optimum route to the most direct place and you get a kind of a continuous descent so you don't stack. So there's a lot actually happening. If anything, I would say the crisis has put this on hold because you always notice that, you know, to an extent, and don't want this to sound facetious, but the environment often gets forgotten in a crisis because people start panicking about their jobs, about their money, about their mortgages, you know, the basic things of life. And then they get to the environment when things just get a little bit better. So I think we lost a little bit of momentum, if anything. So um, one of the problems people have pointed to is that COVID has put a kind of halt to globalization and that many countries are now aiming to protect their own trade like it's i guess it's the retraction that you were talking about there towards well i've got to look after my own house and that includes airlines rather than working with international competitors to open up new routes or even keep the current ones going are you conscious of that too I, I am conscious of it. I mean, in Europe, when the COVID hit, everybody reverted to, to national. They had to close the borders. They had mm. to kind of um, do all the things that were necessary to to limit the pandemic. But one thing I would say, Jarlath, is that in the event that kind of nationalism in aviation does not suit Ireland, Ireland operates on the basis of, you know, no borders, the single European sky, the common aviation market. You know, we have prospered. And IAG, Willie Walsh has brought, has really turned, you know, the whole British Airways group around to have a mix of high cost, low cost. You know, you have Michael O'Leary and all these guys have done very well with this. So the idea of going back to borders is something Ireland should resist completely. We benefit. We're, we're a nation of people who like to travel, who like to go out, who like to work in other countries, and we should preserve that and value that very well. And I think, you know, sometimes closing up your borders seems like a very good idea. But it's actually very short term and it makes you very insular very quick. And, you know, if Irish people can't travel and can't see the world and can't talk to people, then you don't import ideas. And you very quickly, in my view, go back to a 1950s type economy. Mm, And I guess that's the that's the big fear. I mean, David McWilliams was on this show not too long ago talking about how governments need to take 
a view of the economy not dipping, but simply going to sleep. And that the issue is how we get it to blink its eyes open when the time comes. Now, the issue with flying is that, you know, people are scared of contracting this virus in the air through, you know, the confinement of the plane itself. Just to get down to particulars <coughs> here, uh, has Eurocontrol thought about that battle for trust and that contest to get people to go, yeah, I, I, I believe that this doesn't pose a risk to me, my family and my child, or <coughs> in my case, my vulnerable wife. Yeah, sure. Jarth, the key thing, we've worked very closely with the Commission and, and with the Aviation Safety Agency in Europe, and we've, we've published a whole set of guidelines that is for return to, to, to flying. And that deals with all the issues that, you know, social distancing at airports, hand washing. And remember that the air quality in an aircraft is of the same quality you have in, air, in, a, in an operating theater. It's much cleaner than you will have in a pub. It's much cleaner than you will have in a cinema or in a taxi or in a train. Is so, that so right? Hold on. That, that, that's that's yeah. really interesting. Now that for me is big. These are called HEPA, HEPA filters. And, and basically the air circulates. It doesn't circulate around the cabin. It comes from the top up to the bottom in a circle. So it, 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 you know, it's quite useful. I mean, I do accept the point and I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm rational. People are in a, you know, a 737-800 or Ryanair, you have 189 seats. He tends to operate at 97% occupancy. Sure, there's a risk there, mm -hmm. like with anything else. But to me, it's no bigger a risk than if you visit a pub or if you go to a restaurant. The air, however, is cleaner. You know, everybody wears a mask. Uh, if everybody does this, I think it'll work out perfectly. Because the whole idea of getting back public trust is the same as getting public trust when you go to a supermarket, when you do something Good. So I, I don't, I think the Irish public will return to flying pretty quick. I, I'm not that worried about it. Well, I didn't actually know about, you know, that, that filter statistic and that, and that air quality statistic. And I probably think I'll be saying that to my wife as I no, it's try to book the filter. This. Yeah. Yeah. It's, because it's a really I think good there's, thing. there's, you know, my mother had this thing that she would always say that, well, the air quality in the plane was better when people were allowed smoke on board because <laughs> they were they were forced to extract the air and dump yeah. it outside. Is, that, is there I any mean, truth I, in that or is that just an Irish no, mammy being an mean, Irish mammy? No, no. I mean, realistically, you know, you can, the air gets circulated in an aircraft about once every three minutes. You know, that's in total. And once every minute, a third of it is, is recirculated. And it's using these heat, what we call HEPA filters, which are the same ones you use in the, in the hospitals. Now, the reality is that the air is filtered very well. So, so I, I'd never have a worry about that. I mean, mm. the worry I have got about flying is only, only the same as I have about going out, you know, making sure that you don't contact anything you shouldn't and all of this kind of thing. Yeah. But, the, the, but for me, it's not the aircraft that stops people flying. I mean, nobody wants to fly to Spain if all the pubs are closed, if all the restaurants are closed. So yeah. to me here, I'm working very hard every day with the commission here, trying to get the countries to open their borders, to allow people in where it's safe. I mean, we're not promoting travel for the sake of travel, but I do have a view on the pandemic that, you know, COVID is not going to disappear. It is going to be here in the winter of 2020 and in the spring of 2021 and the winter of 2021. You know, a vaccine won't show up overnight in my view. So the reality is we have to live with it, contain it, risk, deal with it, 
and it's going to be tricky. But we just can't shut the whole economy down and everybody stop a second time. I don't think that's sustainable. So obviously, when you're in those chats, this is, you know, this is your bread and butter. This is what you do best, Eamon, is diplomatic, calm discussion with people towards achieving mutually beneficial situations. Now, there'll be people listening to this in business who struggle with that, who genuinely would love to hear your advice on how to get the best out of a negotiation and how when going into something where you have something you want, they have something they want, and trying to actually either win them over or find that middle ground has been your job for years and years and not in the most hospitable situations. What do you in or have you ever reflected on the keys to this for you and the go-to thoughts that you have going in? Well, I, 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 the, fir the first principle I always apply when I'm talking to anybody is to try and understand where they're coming from. Mm. What's their angle? What are they at? You know, you go back to the old Sun in China and all this kind of thing and you see, you know, understand your, not your, I don't use the word enemy, but understand who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, I think you can make a lot of progress. I always try to find common ground. And the funny thing is, I, um, as a general technique in negotiation, what I always try to do is get everything we agree on on the table first and everything we don't agree on at the very, very last thing to be dealt with so that there's so much positivity built up that you can actually make a little bit of progress. You, you never get anything where without making concessions. I mean, if I could give you a good example in this pandemic situation, for the first time ever, the world of aviation has met the world of medicine, mm. you know, and here... I'm now dealing with people from, you know, the European Center for Disease Control and, you know, EASA are doing it and all of this type of things are happening. And you're looking at people who come at this from a completely different angle. And I'm trying to, you know, get people to encourage them to fly, to encourage airports to be open. And they're taking a far broader community work. And I'm trying to say somewhere in the middle of, say, the complete shutdown and don't fly approach to the fly with a lot of precautions is the right answer. So it, it's basically, it's negotiation, I think, is something you learn over the year, but 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 you got to understand the other guy. So understanding the other guy, definitely. I, I, I even find that with my own son, that I'm trying to actually accept that I don't know where he's coming from. I'm not, not actually 100% clear walking in the door. Have you ever had a negotiation go to the point where you're like, I don't I don't know how we get back from this, because that's obviously the loggerheads that people talk about, where it's like never the twain shall meet. What generally is the thing that resolves that? I mean, you've, you've been in multiple situations like that. Well, I think that the, the first thing that, you, that I think both parties need to realize always at the start of something that ultimately has got to be resolved. You know, if you take, for instance, labor disputes or something like that, you know, everybody gets very excited initially and they take a hard line or they might go and strike. But at the end of the day, everybody comes back to the idea, actually, we got to do a deal. And wh what, I what I find is that at the end, you know, a very good example of this is the Brexit negotiations that are happening here in Europe at the moment. Just looking at the, you know, the attitude of the UK, you would say a deal is not possible. Both the EU and the UK know that a deal is required. So as long as you know that a deal is required, it's fine. Because that's the advantage to me. One of the reasons I love working in Europe is because 
It's brilliant at compromising. You know, a lot of people give out about Europe, but look at the positives. You know, we haven't had a war for so long. People now talk to each other. They don't shoot at each other. And the whole way the continent has developed has been really good. And people take for granted the fact that we can all travel to other countries, but also that you have a common, you know, health system where you can get treated in other countries, a common currency, standards for pharmaceuticals and banking and everything. So sometimes I worry that people don't realize that this thing, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to do a deal. And that's what we have to do with Europe as well, is make sure that we are an active participant in the EU. Well, the no-deal scenario seems very real, right? For this man, Boris, in charge of the country that I'm sitting in right now, seemed not to be afraid of that, even though, you know, people like Michael O'Leary have said that, you know, flights could be grounded for weeks after a no deal. Now, I know that we're through the looking glass and we're in a different world now as a result of the pandemic. But, you know, when someone is actually using the words no deal as, as a possibility, where, where that's, that's what you're meeting, what, I, I what do you th- do there? Well, well Jarlath, uh, first of all, there's no such thing as no deal. No deal just means a different deal. Okay. Okay. And I think that's important. There will always be a deal. And there's a set of rules for aviation. If you don't have the regular deal, you go back to the old system of having bilaterals and it's mm-hmm. much slower, much less capacity. So there's always a deal. The question is, you know, do you stay in the, in the marketplace? For me at the moment, I'm pessimistic. I, I'm not seeing a lot of movement, particularly from the UK side. And, you know, from an Irish point of view, I think that we've all got caught up in the pandemic and I can understand that. But Brexit is coming down the road you know, like a train. Mm. And we really got to be careful because at the end of this year, you're going to be faced with a crisis. And and I think I'm not happy the way that the UK have tended to misinterpret or differently interpret, say, some of the Northern Ireland provisions and things that affect Ireland. Because from an aviation point of view, we've got to be careful. We need to stick with the single European market. And you're going to have to make choices in Ireland. You know, and this is the problem always you're faced with in Ireland is how do you keep close to our, our compatriots in the UK, who we have a lot of cultural links with, etc., and history, or the European Union. And sometimes you're going to have to make a choice. And this is going to be difficult for the Irish government, because we have a great tradition of fudging things. I fudge things every day myself, you know, mm. but I think you're going to be faced with choices now. So one thing I want to bring up, and this is, uh, you know, this is, uh, I guess when I first heard that Amazon were considering drone deliveries for their goods. I mean, during this lockdown, most of us have ordered more Amazon stuff than we ever thought possible. And the concept of it being dropped into your garden by a drone, you know, seemed laughable a year ago. But now I'm like, "Eh, maybe not such a crazy idea. Eurocontrol held an inaugural forum on aviation and AI in early 2019 and it brought together kind of the key players and you know, kind of served as this launching point for the aviation network to discuss the strategic use of artificial intelligence for the future for the for actually con- getting to a day when planes may be unmanned how is that going first of all Eamon and okay. how far away yeah. is that well, well, let, let's just deal with the easy issue first. So the easy issue is planes been unmanned. I mean, that technology actually exists at the moment because, you know, you have um, military drones, you know, you've all, be, you've all heard about drone mm. strikes in Iraq, in Iran and all this. 
you know, we you've had unmanned drones flying across the North Atlantic, and they're quite big. So the actual technology exists to do it, and 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 is quite accurate. The issue, of course, for most people is that, and me as well, you know, you need to fly with a pilot. You know, you need the confidence. So, so it's a question of confidence. So I wouldn't see in the short term any possibility of um, pilots being eliminated. I, I think there are really important safety feature in in the aircraft. What you might see is the role of the pilot been different in that the aircraft being a lot more automated. Mm. I mean, at, currently at the moment, you know, you have auto landing capability on Airbus 320s or 738s and this kind of thing. So there's a lot of it there. But what you have to remember is that drones are really the forefront. They're showing us, for instance, that you can fly drones all over Europe, really, you know, and they have sense and avoid technology. So you don't need the same level of air traffic control. So the challenge for aviation or for artificial intelligence in aviation is how do you use big data? You know, mm. because to give you an example, like if you take EasyJet there uh, or, or Reiner, they take huge amounts of data in, they can map the customer preferences and all this kind of thing. But the same applies in the air because, you know, routes that are flown yesterday, you know, what happened, what height, what wind speed, do you actually, you know, need to have this, the same level of intervention? And the other thing that's that I would say Charlotte as well, is that there's also the safety aspect of it. And I mean, in some cases in the future, these will actually be safer systems because you will have the ability to intervene from the ground. Mm -hmm. So aviation intelligence gives you a lot of challenges, but, and here's the but, the but is, of course, you're always open to cyber attack. And this is the problem. You know, you you solve one problem and then you open up a whole other problem and and you can see where where, where you get into very quickly. So we're pushing in your control, looking at what the boundaries are, looking at how it would affect air traffic control systems, you know, surveillance systems. You know, we have um, a new surveillance system on the North Atlantic that's a satellite tracker system. And all of this is coming in in aviation. But AI, I think, you know, we have to take it step by step and make sure that it's kind of safe and that it's not hackable. Speaking of step-by-step, Eamon, I understand that uh, you go walking in the Himalayas every year. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Uh, is there, that seems like a very far-flung place to go and get your R&R. Is that because this job wants you all for itself and that in order for you to fully switch off, that's the kind of distance you have to travel? Well, I, I, I don't think it's anything to do with distance. What it is, is just, I, I love being outside. I like, you know, I was reared in, in Salt Hill in near, and I, we spent a lot of time out in Connemara and Uktarard. And, you know, I go on my holidays to Kerry. My, my kids went to the Gwaeltuk in Moriok, uh, near Dingle. And, and I just love being outside. So I met a few friends once and they said, look, would you like to come to Bhutan on, on a walk? And we went there for five weeks and I loved it, you know. And since then, I try to get, I go with this group every single year and we sleep in tents. But what I like about it is, you know, I don't see any aircraft. The mobile phone never works and I get a complete break and I lose weight and I come back in better form. So, you know, I'm one of these people when I see an aircraft passing, even after all these years, I stop to look at it. I, I, I still wonder how an aircraft flies and I, I love it. I mean, you, you have to. I mean, this is an all encompassing job and, a, you know, a key job to the running of the world. Does it ever get on top of you, Eamon? Is there ever, like, clearly, you know, we need the break. And I think everyone is feeling it. And the reason why there's such passion now to getting 
planes back in the air is because people are going, I, I, I bloody need a rest from this. Yeah, no, it, of course it gets on top of you. I mean, just every job gets on you. You know, what get, tends to get on top of me is the routine administrative work that you've got to do. I'm not good at that. You know, a lot of people who know me very well say I, I perform better in a crisis when things are going wrong than I do when everything is going, going good. You know, I mean, I remember when I, when I was a, a kid, Charlotte, one of the first movies that I saw was, was a thing called The Blue Max. I don't know if you remember that. The Blue but Max. But it was filmed no. in Ireland, I think in 1966 in Bray. But it, it involved a lot of Air Corps pilots, you know, flying uh, around Dublin, doing dogfights and all this. And there was no simulation at the time. There was no, you know, 3D. They actually did the dogfights. And, you know, I remember looking at that and saying, this is something I really like. And I remember as a kid going down to Shannon Airport and looking at the aircraft there with my father and mom. And this, you know, it was always something good. So I think that I'm attracted towards kind of um, airports and aviation. And I don't find it that stressfully personally. I tend to get really stressed. If you said to me, okay, you've got the day off. I mean, what does stress me, I'll be honest with you, is if, if you told me at 5.30 today that I've got tomorrow off and if I've got no plan for the day, I actually get very stressed because I need to figure out what would I do or what would I do, you know. So this is the worry. I hate an empty space. The, uh, the Blue Max, I'm just, just looking at it here, starring George Peppard and yeah, Ursula yeah. Andrus. Not one I yeah. knew about and not shot off the coast of Ireland, did you say? Yeah, shot, shot off Bray and with, with Irish Air Corps pilots in 1966, you know. And, you know, like Ireland has a great, I mean, I think that you have to remember that Ireland has a great... Um, heritage when it comes to that. One of the things I did when I was in the IAA was I, I, I sponsored a movie about a guy called Paddy Finucane, and he was a wing commander in the RAF, and he had, I think, the second largest, very close to the top number of kills during the Second World War, you know, and his dad was involved in the 1916 rise, and then uh, uh, his father was taught maths by him and De Valera out in Blackrock, but I always like looking at the history, and I, I don't know if you know, like, this, the, you know, people like Paddy Saul was a guy, for instance, and he, he flew with Charles Kingsford Smith on the our first around the world trip to Southern Cross. He did a leg with that. And, you know, Fitzmaurice, who flew with the Bremen across the Atlantic. So Ireland has always been a place. And when I was a kid, you know, I remember going to Clifton and looking at the Alcock and Brown Memorial. Mm. And it said, this is the very first place an aircraft landed in Ireland. Now, it, landing was a very nice word, you know. It had what I'd call a runway excursion. And, and then you look at the modern people who inspire me, people like Tony Ryan, because, you know, all of the success in my view in the last 30 years in Ireland or 40 years has, I would attribute very strongly, not so much with, with, you know, government policy, which has helped, but with the foresight of Tony Ryan. He basically pushed boundaries, did things in the leasing industry, and you have great people involved in leasing in, in, in Ireland, like the Slatteries and Angus Kelly and Peter Barris, like we have a large proportion of the market mm. for aviation leasing in the world. And that's going to face some big challenges now, I can tell you, with this COVID. Uh, what was it about Tony Ryan? Because that, that name comes up again and again across this series. What do you attribute to him? If we could maybe finish on this, if, like I, I fully agree and I just got my hands on you know, the book of his life. Yep. This man seems like an absolute one-off in in the the George Best kind of Michael Jordan sense of things that there isn't anyone like him and there hasn't been since. Well, what do no, you no, I, what do you attribute that to, and what was it about him that made him different? What well, what I attribute to him really, what, what I mean, 
Tony had a lot of drive. He was a very determined person. And he didn't, you know, he didn't abide idiots easy. And the thing about things about Tony was that he always knew what he wanted to do and he didn't take anything as a boundary. He never thought, uh, took a government decision as, you know, as a boundary. He never took anything that could be done. He always opened up new fields like leasing, like Reiner. I mean, just look at something. The two kind of advisors that he had, or I suppose kind of workhorses that he had, Michael O'Leary was on one side and Dennis O'Brien was on the other side. Both of those guys were stagiaires effectively for, for Tony Ryan. But my experience of Tony was that basically when he wanted something done, it, it happened and, and he used all his energy, but he was a very positive person. And when he got a knock, I mean, you have to remember, he tried to float, float Guinness Pete Aviation and it never happened. He quickly bounced back, you know, and he bounced back into forming kind of Ryanair and getting that whole low cost thing developed in Europe. So for me, he's an inspiration. He shows you that if you have an idea, you can achieve it if you put the work and the energy into it. Loved, loved, loved this chat and Eamon's passion for what he does. And some of those predictions of his were dead on. I mean, the path that I've been on in pulling together these episodes in this whole series has honestly had a really calming effect on me in a time that is quite fraught. This widening of the lens that really helps you get a better sense of things and how things can work out in what was a really, really dark situation. Eamon Brennan is proof that there's smart people at the top there. My next guest, Michael Lillis, or Mick Lillis, as he's known to his friends, he might be the most influential Irishman in aircraft leasing across the globe. And some of the stories he has to tell me in the next episode will make your head spin. Thanks to everyone who has been in touch. Irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com is the best way to contact me directly. I'm Jarlath Regan. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and leave a review of The Flying Irishman on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Sound production, editing and research by Jarlath Regan. Special thanks to Declan Ryan and Ellen James. Flying Irishman is an Irishman Abroad podcast.